This message is brought to you by this excellent church. We excel at reshaping people's values and reconciling men to God. You're about to hear peace and preach. Be blessed. So this evening, I'll be teaching on some thoughts on trusting God. So I just wanted to share some things that God has been teaching me for a while. It may seem a little elementary, but you know, I think even if these are things we know, I think there is there is virtue or advantage in having these things repeated for the sake of emphasis. So our anchor text this evening is Jeremiah seventeen from verse five to eight. It says, This is what the Lord says Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Praise God. So at several points, I'll be making reference to this scripture and other scriptures in the course of this teaching. So the first point I have here is that trusting God is having confidence in God's character. It is not predicated on a desired outcome, but on who God says he is. Let's open Daniel chapter 3. Verse 17 to 18. Now these are the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had refused to bow down to the idol that the king had created. And so, you know, they were arrested and brought before the king at the threat of being thrown into um, a furnace. And this is what they said. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. What they said here just reflects so much trust and confidence in God. First of all, they made reference to God's character. They knew that God was able to deliver them. And they had confidence in God's character, in God's ability to save them. But they also said that even if God does not save them from the furnace, it does not change their disposition. It doesn't change their minds. That is actually what trusting God is. It's easy to, in quote, trust God when things are going your way and you're having the outcomes you want. But to truly say that even if what I desire or what I wish doesn't come, I'll still trust in God. That is really what trust is. And that's what they said. Even if God does not deliver us, quite, quite all right, they acknowledge God's ability to save them. But they were confident that even if God doesn't deliver them from the furnace, it doesn't change anything. They will still not compromise. A man who does not trust God will find it difficult to do the will of God, especially if the person considers that doing the will of God in a particular circumstance, that the cost of doing the will of God is too high. You could say that ah, this is literally them sacrificing, this is their life on the line. But because they trusted God, they didn't see their lives as too much collateral in the balance of the scale of trusting God. There wasn't a Oh, I can trust God for this, but uh, when it comes to this one, when this outcome is going to happen, 
this is where I draw the line. No, even if it meant that they were going to lay down their lives to do the will of God, not to commit sin by bowing to an idol, they were ready. That is what trusting God actually is. They had confidence in God's character. Trusting God is evident in strengthened convictions and deters us from compromise. Because they trusted God, they were able to, to, to still insist that they were not going to bow down. There were other Jews that were captives, and most likely they, they, they bowed down. They probably felt, you know, God understands, you know, this is a very tough one. Let's just do it. We still worship God. But their conviction, their confidence in God meant that they were not going to compromise. They were not going to, um, they were not going to cut corners. They were going to be faithful to what God has commanded that they should not bow down to any idol. Trials and storms reveal where our confidence lies. Again, as I said, sometimes it's easy when you know, things are going our way to say, oh, I trust God. But the true test of whether we have confidence in God is when we come to circumstances like this, where we, we, there is a temptation to compromise, where trials come, where difficult situations arise. That is when we actually know whether we trust God or not. The second point I have here is that when we truly trust God, we will not fear. Again, Jeremiah 17, verse 8 that we read. Let me just go back to that. Speaking about those who trust in God, it says, They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its root by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. It does not say that the heat will not come. It says that even when the heat comes, the person who trusts in the Lord does not fear. Even when there is drought, the person does not worry. So I think when we face challenges and, you know, things, unexpected things, our, our, the way our heart is, whether we are giving in to fear and worry, could be an indication of whether we trust God or not. Because if we consider that God is greater than whatever situation we are going through and that God is for us, we should not be easily shaken by things that happen. Things happening in the economy, things happening in the political sphere or wherever should not shake us, should not deter us. We should put our confidence in God. So the fact that, oh, you are in the, maybe in the tech, in the tech space and there's a lot of retrenchment, ah, what's happening in this industry? It shouldn't be enough to make you start thinking that maybe, oh, like what's going to happen to me? You'll be so fearful and anxious. Your confidence will be in God. Trusting that God is able to preserve you and that even if you lose your job, God will still keep you. God is still faithful regardless. So being a believer does not mean that scary situations will not come our way. But our confidence in an entity who is greater than us is what is meant to strengthen us and deliver us from fear. Because fear is a tool that the devil uses to turn our hearts away from God. For instance, Fear of poverty pushes people to idolize money and, you know, they just devote their entire lives to the pursuit of money. I remember a few weeks ago, I read an article on Zikoko about this person, a really young lady. She's like in her early 20s, I think. She's not married. She does not have children. And she said she has, I think, about 100 million naira in savings and she's too scared that she'll be poor. A hundred million naira. A single woman, no children. Her family, even though she says she supports her family, but her family isn't like they are broke and they are totally dependent on her. She comes from like a middle class family. So sometimes she helps with bills and stuff like that. But she has 100 million naira in savings and she's still scared. She's still like she has to keep working because anything can happen. The money can just finish. And I was like, 
look at how poverty has held her in a chokehold. Of course, it's not like, oh, because she has 100 million, she should relax and she should be like, oh, I have confidence in my 100 million. But the things she said shows so much that she was so scared of the concept of poverty. And that was the, her whole motivation for working hard. Ah, I have to keep working, I have to keep doing more, taking more jobs, applying for higher jobs because I don't want to be poor. And her reference was to a time when, um, when she was growing up and her family didn't have as much anymore. And it's so funny the things that she said that um, when they didn't have enough, she noticed that I think they were no longer buying ice cream and stuff like that. It wasn't even that they were homeless, so it was just that some of the pleasures they used to enjoy was not there because her family went through a hard time. Like this someone that studied abroad and she was still so scared of poverty. And just it just confirmed to me that it's not even about how much you have. Someone who has only 1,000 naira to their name can have more peace, more joy than her because they put their confidence in God. Similarly, fear of death or social ostracization, that's another thing too that is also big in our times. In some places, people literally profess their faith at the risk of dying. And even in places where you know, there's a bit more comfort, we don't really face that kind of persecution. There's the fear of being ostracized. You don't want people to think of you as Yajesu or all those things. So that can make you compromise. That can make you not want to insist on godly standards. So in your office, you laugh at the kind of jokes that you know you shouldn't laugh at because you don't want them to think you are too uptight. You know, if people are discussing things that are clearly wrong, you are too scared to speak up. You are too scared to preach the gospel because you don't want them to ostracize you. You don't want your boss to look at you funny. You don't want to offend a client or something like that. Even when they are saying something that is clearly wrong, even when you know in your heart that this is an opportunity for you to preach the truth to the person. But because the fear of being ostracized, of being canceled is so much, you now compromise on doing what God has asked you to do. And this is, again, why I said that not trusting God actually makes it difficult for you to do the will of God. Because there will be times when that fear will be there. Whether it is rational or irrational, that fear will be there. And each time we come to those points, we have to deliberately say no to the fear and yes to God. And I remembered when P. Sam was teaching us on deliverance from our enemies, he talked about this as well, that a believer is not meant to be afraid because the death is no longer something we should fear because we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And he talked about how we, what actually helps us overcome this fear is looking to God, is receiving his love, knowing that he loves you. And still, that relates to God's character. Because if you know that God is a loving father, you will know that he is for you. And that even if that thing that you fear happens to you, it's not the end for you. The worst case scenario of a believer being poor this worst case scenario because we even know that God will supply our needs. The Bible says that the ch children of God will not beg for bread. But even if the worst case scenario happens and you die as a result of poverty, you are going to heaven. So really, that fear for a child of God is actually irrational. If people cancel you or they even kill you because of the gospel, it means you are going to heaven. So if we actually think about those things, if we actually understand the God who we serve, we realize that those fears are actually irrational. When the Bible says that he has not given us the spirit of fear and that we are not in bondage, this is what it actually means. The child of God is not in bondage because the entity that is greater than whatever life can throw at us is for us. That is what he has said. 
He said he will never leave us nor forsake us. So we can confidently say, what can man do to me? That should be the disposition of a child of God. In Matthew chapter 10, Matthew 10, verse 27 to 31. This was Jesus speaking to his disciples. He said, What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus, knowing that there are situations his disciples will face that will cause them to be scared, to shrink back from preaching the gospel. He encouraged them. He reminded them of the fact that God is a father who cares for them. That if God cares for the sparrows who are sold for two for a penny, how much more them? That God has numbered the hairs on their heads. That is the confidence that we have, that God is for us. Similarly, in 2 Timothy Second Timothy 1, verse 78, a very popular scripture as well. Apostle Paul saying to Timothy, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. This is similar sentiments being expressed here. Of course, there was so much persecution. Apostle Paul was suffering for the gospel. I believe that at this point he was even in prison and he was writing to Timothy. And he knew that that situation could discourage Timothy. Timothy could look, ah, see my spiritual father is in prison. See all that he's gone through. But he encourages him not to be ashamed of the testimony of Christ, even though there was a very real risk of him also being thrown into prison, of him also being killed because of the gospel. He encourages him. He reminds him that the spirit that God has given him is not one that makes him timid, but one that gives him power, love, and self-discipline. Because we are children of God, fear should not have a hold on us. We should not live our day, days always afraid, always afraid. We should not let fear hold us captive. We should live boldly, confidently, knowing that God is for us, knowing that God is our Father. The third point I have here is that we know God's character through his word and through our experiences. Because how we can actually build trust in God is knowing who God is. You can't trust somebody that you don't know. You can't. It's, we see that even with our man-made relationships that, you know, the more you know someone, the more vulnerable someone is with you, the more you know them, the more you trust them. That's why we don't trust strangers. If someone is offering if someone you don't know is offering you a lift even if the person has the best intentions you don't know them so you don't trust them in the same way as well if we don't know god we can't trust him we know god's character through his word and through our experiences romans 15 verse 4 for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide we might have hope. So the things written in scripture, 
the things we see about the fathers of faith in the Old Testament and even the apostles in the New Testament was written for us so that we can see God's faithfulness in the life of others. We can see how he came through for people, how he delivered them, and we can have trust in him. This is how we know God, that if this is who he was, we can see that his nature is consistent throughout scripture. So we can trust in him. We can have confidence in him. First John 1 verse 1 that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked at and our hands have touched this we proclaim concerning the word of life even though you know sometimes there is the real risk of people running with their experiences and making funny doctrines out of it but we cannot completely do away with the place of experiences we can't say because people have formed faulty doctrines based on experience something they perceived or saw that oh it's just the word of god and nothing else there's actually a place of experiences and that's what john said here he talked about the things that they had experienced with the with their walk with jesus this was part of what strengthened their convictions because they knew it wasn't just some theoretical thing they had experienced it they couldn't deny what it is that they had experienced and even when we look at we look all around us that's why some of our parents even if they're not so they don't really know what like that some of their experiences is the reason why even if they cannot have the best arguments against atheists they will not shift they still believe they can say eh, okay whatever but this was what happened to me in 1990 something i cannot explain that logically so you cannot tell me that god does not exist or anything so experiences are actually valid ways for us to learn to trust God and we build based on precedent. So when we when God comes through for us at a point, it becomes easier for us to trust him for the next thing when we come to another challenge or oh, if God did it then he doesn't change so he will still come through for me in this time. So I'll just read some psalms because I was looking at the psalms and how David made reference a lot to the things God had done and you would notice that you know some some of his, the psalms there is that trend of oh god why have you forsaken me blah 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 woe is me and then he will recall god's faithfulness and that will now after that he will now talk about oh he will trust in the lord he will believe in god he knows that god will deliver him so let's let's look at some of them psalms 103 Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Praise God. Here, um, yes, it's a Psalm of David, just to be sure. Yes, he made reference to the experience of the Israelites in the desert. Of course, he was not there when all those things were happening, when God was doing miracles, when he brought them out of Israel. But those things were recorded, and there were things that they were available for them to read from and meditate on. And this was the basis of his confidence that God will also deliver him. Because God did it before. He had reference, he was able to make reference to God's character, about how God showed himself to Moses. That God made his ways known to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. And what are, what are those ways? That God is compassionate and gracious. That God is slow to anger, abounding in love. 
And because of that, he could confidently say that God would forgive all his sins and heal all his diseases, who, and God would redeem his life from the pits. So based on what was written, he was able to place his confidence and trust in God. Let's also look at Psalm 20, verse 6 to 7. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Praise God. He could make reference to the fact that God gives victory, that God answers prayers. And he declared that he will trust in God because God is the one that gives victory to his anointed who answers from his heavenly sanctuary. Let's also look at Psalm 22, from verse 3 to 5. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Again, making reference to what the Israelites went through how God delivered them, how their ancestors put their trust in God, and God delivered them. That shows us that what is written, and sometimes even the experiences of other believers can encourage us to trust God. That's actually the purpose of testimonies, so that when we see what God has done for someone, we can also trust God. Of course, sometimes those things are abused, and people make it a competition of things that the goodness of God is not. But at its core, it's supposed to show God's faithfulness to us so that we can also be encouraged. Also, in our lives, there are instances where God shows us his character. And if we cast our mind back to those experiences, they ought to strengthen our convictions. This is the reason why ungrateful people struggle to trust God. Because the inability to reflect and acknowledge God's faithfulness means that every time we face a new challenge, we struggle to trust God. And with that struggle comes the temptation of murmuring and unbelief. The people who showed this time and time again, the best examples are literally the Israelites. I mean, God through signs and wonders in Egypt delivered you from the people that had held you as slaves for hundreds of years. And you got to the, to the Red Sea and you started complaining. You said that they brought you here to perish. Sometimes I even wonder, is it that weeks had passed, like maybe months had passed between that time that they had forgotten? But I don't think so. God had delivered them miraculously, and still they were complaining. They, they did not have trust in God. They were already so scared and frightened that, you know, they were going to die in the Red Sea. Even after that, when God delivered them from the Red Sea, they got to the wilderness. They still complained. They murmured. So many things. God provided manna. They still complained. Meanwhile, God had actually been faithful all the while, but they still could not trust in God. And that was part of what hindered them from entering the promised land. In Hebrews, we understand that because um, the word that they heard was not mixed with faith, that's why they could not enter into the rest. And that's why God was angry with that generation. And truly, the generation of those that came out of Egypt were not the ones that entered the promised land. It was their children who entered the promised land. Let's just look at that in Deuteronomy 1 from verse 26 to 36. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? 
Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord of God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show the way you should go. This is literally a summary of everything that happened from Exodus up until this point. God was reminding them that I was with you throughout the entire time, yet you still don't trust me. Now you're almost at the promised land. Your complaint is now that, you know, the people in the land are bigger than you. Their cities are strong. They even said that God hates us. If God hated them, would he have preserved them all those time? But they allowed the fear of what they were looking at to overwhelm their knowledge of God. God referred to himself as a loving father who had carried them through. You would think that everything that they had passed through and how God had kept being faithful, even when they were murmuring, God would still forgive them. He would still have mercy on them. He would still sustain them, that that would be enough. But they still fail to trust in God. And the same way as believers, we can fall into that. We can get to the point where we are ungrateful because of what is not happening in the moment. We forget all that has happened in the past. We forget the precedent that God has laid, that how he has shown himself to be faithful, to be a good father to us. And we know that this is a warning for us. The grumbling and complaining is not something that believers should do. This is actually a warning for us because we are not actually better than the Israelites. We can still fall into the same temptations that they fell into. So we must be deliberate about acknowledging God's goodness and giving thanks to him. We must not fall into the temptation of complaining because what is happening in the present is not pleasant or we've come to a new challenge, a new obstacle. We must cast our minds back and remember how God has been faithful to us. I remembered something when I was preparing this. Um, it's something that seems small, but it always reminds me of God's faithfulness and how God even provides before the need arises. So when I was in university, I was part of I was part of a society, and we had made hoodies and like customized hoodies that we would wear for our events and stuff like that. But at the events where they shared it, I wasn't around. I think I had like it clashed with something else, maybe church or something, so I didn't go. So I went at another event and the president of the society was supposed to bring it for me. So my keys, I, I normally have a lanyard. That's like that rope thing you wear on your neck and it has a plastic thing that connects all your keys. So that's how I typically carry my keys when I'm leaving the house. So when I got to the event, the president gave me my own hoodie and she had used another lanyard to wrap it. And I was wondering like, was, why did she, like of all things, why didn't she put it in a nylon or something else? Why is it this? And I took it and I wanted to return it to her. And she was like, oh, that she doesn't need it. I can keep it. And I was just like, what am I going to use this for? Like, okay, maybe I'll give it to one of my siblings or something. And I just tossed it in my bag. And then when I got home, as I was going to bring out my keys to open the door, I found out that the one I had had broken in my bag and I didn't realize. And so just in time, that one that she had given me became the replacement. And it just occurred to me that I would have never, like I would have never thought of that 
if I didn't have that replacement, my kids would have most likely gotten missing. And it just, every time I remember that, like, I'm just in awe of how tiny that is, but how God provided that, even before I knew that the need would arise. Like, I didn't know that the thing would break. I'd been using it for a while. I didn't know that it would break in my bag. What are the odds that she would even use that? Like, that's the most random thing that you can use to wrap somebody's clothes. She could have used a plastic bag. She could have even used a rubber band, but that was what she used. So every time I remember that, I'm reminded of how God provides our needs, sometimes even before we know they have a reason, how God makes provision for us. And sometimes we just need to open our eyes to that provision. God is always faithful, even when it seems like we are in a drought. God is always faithful. Even when the heat comes, God is always faithful. To juxtapose um, the disposition of the Israelites, let's look at what Apostle Paul said when he was going through tough times. Second Corinthians 1, 2 Corinthians 1 from verse 8 to 11. Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthians, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Praise God. Like, this scripture almost made me cry, actually. Look at the difference between his response and his approach to that of the Israelites. He talked about how they, like they almost died. He thought they were actually going to die. But that God delivered him. And that because God delivered him then, he's confident that God will continue to deliver him. And because of that, he has set his hope on God, trusting that God will continue to deliver him. This is the disposition of a Christian. This is how we, meant, we are meant to behave when we face challenges. We are meant to say, if God delivered me before, God will deliver me again. There is no challenge. There is no circumstance. There is no trial we can ever face that is too much for God. That, will, that God will now be like, ah, I'm not sure how to deal with this. Whatever it is that we come to, God already has foreknowledge of that. God has already made a way of escape for us. So we can put our confidence in God. Challenges should not make us blaspheme or say things that show unbelief. We should speak like believers even when we go through things. In all that Apostle Paul was saying, he, said, he even said that what he experienced was so that he might rely on himself and on God and not himself, who raises the dead. This means that he even believed that even if I die, God will raise me from the dead. But God delivered him from death in that moment, and he trusted that God would deliver him. But he was already so certain that even if he dies as a result of the persecution, God is able to raise him from the dead. That is the belief of a Christian. This is similar to what we read about the three Hebrew boys in Daniel 3, verse 17 to 18, when they said God is able to deliver them. But even if God doesn't deliver them from the furnace, they will not bow down to the idols. That is what our disposition should be as believers. We should trust in God's ability to deliver us. We should put our trust in the character of God on who he has revealed himself to be. The fourth point I have here is that each time we encounter a challenge, we have two choices. We either look to God and trust him 
or we look to ourselves. When we look to ourselves, the outcome is fear or anxiety or pride, depending on whether we see the challenge as surmountable or not. So every time we come to a challenge, every time we face a difficulty in life, we are met with two choices. There isn't a third choice. That is why the scripture we read in Jeremiah 17 talks about those who trust in the arm of flesh, then talks about those who trust in God. So that's is either or. Is that you trust in the flesh or you trust in God? So every time we come to a challenge, even not even a challenge, sometimes in our day-to-day, -day, we may not even realize the ways in which our confidence is in the flesh. Our confidence is in our intelligence, in our jobs, in our beauty, in the money we have, when it's not in God. It's just that sometimes, most times, is when we now have a challenge that it now becomes very, very obvious. The things we say, the, you know, how we think, how we begin to view God when we have challenges will now show us whether we've placed our confidence in God or in those things, or in our desired outcomes. As I was saying, when we look to ourselves, there are two outcomes. It's either fear or anxiety. If you feel like this challenge is more than your ability, is more than you, maybe you're met with um, some sort of financial challenge, and you're like, ah, this one passed my power. Then the temptation is to give in to fear and anxiety. You forget how God has come true for you in the past. On the other hand, there's also the perspective of pride when you think ah, I'm able to so you don't even think about God at all it becomes I can't I can't do it now I can run it but we see what what is said in Jeremiah 17 the let me just read it again the outcome of those who trust in the flesh Jeremiah 17 from verse 5 this is what the Lord says cursed is the one who trusts in man who draws strength from mere flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord this means that trusting in our flesh means that we have turned our heart away from God. We cannot trust in our flesh, in our abilities, and say that we, our heart is with the Lord. He continues and says, that person will be like a bush in the wasteland. They will not see prosperity when it comes. The person who does not trust God will not see God's provision, even when God is making it available. It's possible for someone to be so overwhelmed by fear and anxiety that they will not see the way that God has made already. Sometimes it's even because we have a predisposition of how we want God to do it. So maybe someone has a need for accommodation and the person thinks that how it must happen is that he must receive one big contract that he used to rent a house. But sometimes the provision can literally be that there's somebody in church who has a spare room for you. But because your trust is in... Ah, is if it's not this money, if I don't have that money, your trust is in money that is until I have that money to be able to rent an apartment that I will be able to have accommodation. You will not see what God is making available for you. That's why it says they will not see prosperity when it comes. Because when your heart is turned away from God, you will not see God's goodness. All you'll be seeing is the deficiency. You'll be seeing your inadequacies. You'll be seeing your shortcomings. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a, in a salt land where no one lives. On the other hand, the person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him, is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Praise God. At every point in our lives, at every point in time, our trust is in something or someone. Even if we're not conscious of it, there is something that we are putting our confidence in. There is something that makes us get up every day and go about what it is that we want to do. 
So it is for us to introspect and truly ask ourselves, what is our trust and confidence in? Are we trusting in God? Are we trusting in flesh? Are we trusting in our own strengths and abilities? Are we constantly looking to ourselves? Are we, are we staking our obedience to God on our abilities, on our feelings, on our desired outcomes? Or are we trusting God? Are we trusting that God has shown himself to always be faithful, both in scripture and in our lives? I want us to just take some time now to pray. That's all. It's very short. I hope that what I've shared this evening has blessed you. I just want us to pray for ourselves. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at This Excellent Church. God bless you.